so after the out of body experience, I got the yellow pages, <laughs> which is the, the phone, telephone book, basically again, pre-internet. Um, and I looked up the name and looked up the, the area, the West 11, and I found that there was a person with that name living at that address in, in Notting Hill. So this was the first real verification for me that there was something real going on. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. just happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hey everyone, I have a guest today, Graham Nichols. He is an expert on having out-of-body experiences. He teaches everyone how to do it. He taught a class on this topic at the Rhine Education Center which I took, and it was really informative, great experience. His website is Graham Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-L-S. I'll link to it in the website. He is also an author, and his two books are Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience and Avenues of the Human Spirit. His book, Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience, is about to come out for a re-release. So, it should be a really interesting conversation today. So, Graham, first of all, how do you describe what is an out-of-body experience? Well, um, that's not as simple a question as it might sound, I think, because there are 
many different interpretations, but also there are many different ways that people experience um, going out of body. So I tend to divide it into two categories. There's the experiential side, how it feels to you as an individual as you're having the experience, and then the more sort of theoretical scientific side, what might actually be going on. So that those are the two sort of ways that I, I look at it. So in terms of how it feels, it's more like essentially feels like you are physically floating up above the ground and basically being able to move around and act almost like a, a living ghost, essentially, a bit is a good way of saying it. But the difference the difference being that it, it, you can perceive yourself, you can see yourself laying on the bed sometimes, you can travel over distances to different locations, you can um, see things that are going on, you can even uh, potentially go into other levels of reality maybe, I, I don't know what exactly they are, nobody really does, but there are different levels that people experience in the out-of-body experience. And then there are the theories and ideas about what might actually be going on. Some theories put forward the idea that you're probably still within your body, but a part of you is extended out, almost like almost like a computer connecting to the internet. And then other theories put forward the idea that there's some kind of energetic form or energetic version of yourself and that that is coming out or separating from the physical form and is going to another location. So I tend to subscribe more to the idea that it's some kind of interconnected consciousness, extended consciousness, rather than a rather than a body, because well, the body is not as common as people often believe it is. Uh, many people don't experience it, and also when people do experience some kind of energy body, it it doesn't necessarily appear as if it's physical in in the sense as that it has some kind of um, actual, uh, how can I put this, that it has some kind of actual uh, objective reality uh, independent of the person's actual inner experience. So that's kind of how I would, how I would define it. I think that we're dealing with some kind of extension of psychic ability. It's like all of your psychic abilities all activated all at once. And that gives you this multi-sensory experience that is an out-of-body experience. How close, I know on this show, we've talked some about near-death experiences. How similar do you think an out-of-body experience is to a near-death experience? Or how similar can it be? Can you mimic what it's like when you pass away? Well, an out-of-body experience is a part of a near-death experience. They, uh, a near-death experience often includes the coming out of the body and the traveling around and, and that kind of thing. So most near-death experiences are in, include that out-of-body component. But I would say they do seem to have certain distinctions like traveling down a tunnel is a common, the common description with near-death experiences. Um, the experience of being in another level of reality that seems to be an afterlife type environment that seems to be less frequent in out-of-body experiences, in out-of-body experiences that take place from normal physical uh, health. That tends to be something that doesn't happen, but it does sometimes happen. So 
it's just less less frequent. So I think really they're very they're very similar. There's a lot of crossover elements like the drifting out of the body, floating, moving over distances, perceiving what's going on physically. All of those elements that we would call an out-of-body experience are usually present in a near-death experience. But some people in near-death experiences have more of a internal experience where they're in kind of unknown environment, sometimes a dark environment, sometimes a light environment. It's not doesn't mean it's negative because it's dark. It's just that it sometimes doesn't have any physical or uh, visual elements to it. First of all, what got you interested in studying out-of-body experiences? That's a pretty unique thing to spend your life dedicated to. Well, I, I'd always had unusual experiences since since the age of around five. I saw an apparition when I was uh, in in the building that I grew up in. I left my bedroom and saw this apparition standing in the in the doorway, which at the time was quite scary, and I I didn't really know uh, what to make of it. And from that point onwards, I had lots of unusual experiences, some of which when I got to about 11, 11 or 12, I had some out-of-body experiences just spontaneously. So really, I always had a, a leaning in that direction. I started looking into all kinds of esoteric ideas and astrology and all kinds of things, designed a symbol for myself, which I have on my ring, I still still uh, use that symbol to this day. So, so yeah, it was a kind of time of discovery in my early childhood where all of these things seemed to just happen quite naturally. But then I wanted to learn more about it. I heard on a, I think it, I think I heard on a news program something about this idea of out of body experiences. And when I heard that concept, I wanted to find out more because it seemed to be what happened to me. I I didn't know for sure because obviously when I had my first out-of-body experiences they weren't they weren't similar to anything I'd ever experienced before and I didn't have a terminology or a, a vocabulary to describe it or to talk about it. It was something that was completely alien until I started to hear these kinds of concepts talked about in the media and things like that. So then I went out and got a book on the subject and I I started to learn about it and I basically devoted myself to to learn to induce some experiences intentionally. So that was really the that was really the turning point. I devoted myself for about a year. I said that I was going to spend all my time trying to do this. I was really I don't know why. I don't know where that came from that sort of passion to to do it and to learn more about it. But it was just, it seemed like the most fascinating thing out there to me at the time. So I, so I read everything I could. I practiced every single night. I looked into all kinds of different pagan traditions and things like this and uh, learned from different people in all, all different fields. And, and eventually after six months of consistent practice every single night, I had my first induced out-of-body experience and then that was really the that was the no turning back then that was sort of like the floodgates opened and and I really became quite obsessed with the topic for from then on (laughs) I don't blame you I'm fairly obsessed and 
I don't really have abilities, so I have not really had out-of-body experiences, and I'm so jealous and try so hard. <laughs> so I remember you had mentioned, definitely I remember one about a church, and I believe a few other experiences that were just fascinating, and they were verified, which made, you know, helped demonstrate this isn't just in your head. Would you mind sharing maybe one or two of the most veridical which everyone listening, that means when they've been verified as in, evidential in some way, like a couple of the most veridical experiences you've had? Sure. Those particular kinds of experiences really fascinated me because obviously they they suggest that this isn't just some kind of dream or delusion or things like that. So right at the beginning, I, I wasn't sure what I would say it was. I was having these amazing experiences and they seemed hyper real, but I wasn't really sure that it wasn't some kind of hallucination or anything like that. And then, so the first veridical experience I had started with me finding myself, I, I induced the experience, but instead of finding myself just in my bedroom, often I find myself at locations quite far away from there. Even my first out-of-body experiences were probably half a mile from where I was physically. I would find myself that distance. So I found myself in this particular instance at the end of Edgware Road on the just on the corner of Bayswater Road in London where Marble Arch is. If people don't know London, there's a big sort of structure called Marble Arch right, right there. And it's near to Hyde Park. It's, it's right in the sort of centre of London. And I found myself there around the height of the, the lampposts. So kind of literally sort of hanging in the air. And I was drifting along Bayswater Road, drifted all the way down and then moved off towards Notting Hill and Portobello Road. And then I found myself in front of... Uh, a street with a lines of lines of houses, and I remember seeing the the postcode sign in London. There's the, the kind of metal signs that they have everywhere with the postcode, and this one said W11. So I remember seeing that. I interestingly, I just zoomed in on that, so I didn't see the whole sign. I just zoomed in on the West 11, and then I drifted forward and I went into the upper floor of the of the house, and I saw some papers and like an office table set up basically so this was this was in the sort of mid 90s so kind of pre-internet and all of that kind of stuff so it was the person still had letterhead paper with their sort of name and address on it and I remember that I could perceive the name of the person on the paper I couldn't perceive all the information I was trying to perceive certain things, but I, I managed to perceive the name. So I knew that it was West 11. I knew that the name of the person and I knew roughly where the street was because of where it was in relation to Bayswater Road. So after the out-of-body experience, I got the yellow pages, <laughs> which is the, the phone, telephone book, basically, again, pre-internet. And I looked up the name and looked up the the area, the West 11, and I found that there was a person with that name living at that address in Notting Hill. So this was the first real 
verification for me that there was something real going on. Then at the the end of the 90s, I had probably my most powerful veridical out-of-body experience, which was uh, the Soho bombing. Um, there was a it, it was also precognitive and it, it was a very unique experience. I don't know of any other like it because there were four other people in the room with me when the experience happened. So I was teaching some of my techniques, specifically the G technique, which is one of the methods I use for inducing out-of-body experiences. And I found myself feeling overwhelmed, like there was a sort of energy overcoming me. And I went down onto the ground uh, to get some sort of stability and almost instantly went into an out-of-body experience. Started off going through a, a natural environment, almost through sort of tangled roots and plants and stuff like that. And then it seemed to break away and I found myself standing in Old Compton Street, which is Soho in the centre of London. And I looked ahead and there was a bar up to the right and I saw an explosion burst out. I looked to my right and I saw the Polo Bar, which is on, on Old Compton Street. So I was able to know exactly where I was and that there was this explosion. Everything was in this bluish grey tinge to my vision. And then I felt this emotional wave hit me in the chest as if it came from the actual place. And I came out of the experience, went into a semi-trance state. And one of the people who was there could tell there was something intense going on with me. So he helped sort of coax me out, kind of try and bring me out of that, that state that I was in. And then I described to everyone that I'd seen this bombing and that I felt that it was precognitive. I had this strong feeling that this was something that was going to happen. I'd never had a precognitive experience before, but I, but I had this strong sort of knowing that this was something that was going to happen. And then five days after that, there, there was a bombing in, in the bar on Old Compton Street, how I'd seen it in the out-of-body experience. So it was a very powerful experience and very unique because of the people who were there who sort of witnessed it. There's a, I made a video about 10 years ago, actually now, where I described what happened. And also one of the witnesses who was there is also in the video describing his, his version of what he, what he remembers of, you know, what I said, et cetera, to sort of back up and verify what I said. And then more recently, I've had experiences like uh, the one you mentioned, the church that was the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral in Tallinn in Estonia. I lived in Estonia for 10 years. So a lot of my experiences during that period were in that, in that city. And I, I saw some details about the building that was damaged to one of the outer windows, etc. And again, was able to go and sort of verify that the, the details as I'd seen them were, were correct. And I also had another, another one during that time when they were hoisting the, uh, the Christmas tree into place for the, for the Christmas market. I had an outward experience and went over the top and I saw, I saw them doing all of that and said what was happening. And again, we went and verified and they were hoisting the tree at that moment. Uh, while I was, that I'd had the out-of-body experience. So they hadn't even finished when, when we got there. So it was kind of literally 
I'd seen it in total real time. Yeah, and other kinds of experiences like that, really. But um, yeah, there's been quite a few that were verified with my former partner and then also with other people from events. And also one of a, of a flood as well that was happening in the US. I, I perceived the flood and emailed Anthony Peak, who's another author on these topics. And it turned out the, the, the flood did happen as I, as I saw it in the out-of-body experience as well. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm the kind of person without that verification, I would think these are some really cool, vivid dreams, but I wouldn't believe there was any non-local consciousness that I've been, you know, as people listening know, my dad passed away. So I've been really into studying if there's a possibility of non-local consciousness and, you know, stories like that, that I think can give all of us who are worried about that a lot of very tangible, beyond hope, something tangible to grasp onto. And, and, then, and then people, the, the skeptics will then instantly say, oh, but it's just anecdotes and it's, you know, it's not, it's not in the laboratory. So I did the laboratory research as well. So, <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear about your experiences in the lab because I'm a sciencey person. So that was, you know, I'd love to read all the studies. Let's hear it. I've worked with Rupert Sheldrake was the first person I got in touch with. That was probably about 2007. I, I started doing some work with him. We did a range of controlled experiments, mainly looking at telepathy, but I also did some with precognition and I got the highest score he'd ever seen in a precognition test. So that was under, that was a computer controlled, completely blind experiment. So would you mind describing the details of the experiment? I'm also going to say to everybody, if you heard Graham Nichols say that he got off the charts abilities, that's, I think, a thing we all get confused about because most people can't do this, then we think it's not true because we'll try or there'll be an experiment in a class and you say, oh, see, it's not true, but it's the white crow theory. If a few people can do it, that means it's true. Well, I think overall people, most people do have some ability um, for sure. I mean, when you look at most of the science that's been done on Psy has been done with like just ordinary undergraduate students and they still get statistically significant results. Um, if you control for creative types, musicians and people like that, then they get start to get off the chart sort of results. So it seems to be creative people, especially musicians. I'm not a musician, by the way. People look at the hair, they think I'm a musician. I, I've got no musical ability. <laughs> so just put that out there. But um, yeah, so so that particular experiment worked with sound, although I, I think I am a bit more visual, so I, I used visuals to help me. So, so what it was, was there was a selection of, of sounds, different, for example, one was the sounds of uh, cars, I think, and then another one was a Beatles song, and then another one was birds singing. So just sort of random sounds, basically. And you had to you had to pick which of this selection of sounds you believed was going to be going to be played next. So the, basically, it was computer run, so you, it could have been anything. It was completely random, and it, and and it could also be the same sound twice in a row, or three times in a row, even or whatever. So so you had to you had to sort of be open to that as well. 
So yeah, what I did, I, I used two sort of techniques with it. I, I, I did associate a visual with it because I felt that would be easier for me. So the birds, I imagined a bird singing, the cars, I imagined sort of people getting out of cars, Beatles, I sort of imagined like someone playing a guitar. So I, I kind of created visuals to associate with all of them. And then the method that I used that seemed to be really helpful with that was that I I tried to send the information backwards in time. So I had this idea that, well, it's precognition. So generally with, with the things that I've had precognitive experiences about and things that people describe as having precognitions about tend to be emotional things, like intense things, like a terrorist attack or like a, some kind of big, big event. 9-11 or whatever. So I figured that if I make it big, if I try and make, if I just sort of see the result and I go, oh, okay, I was right. Okay, I was wrong. You know, then there's not much of an impact there. So what I thought was, okay, I'm going to gonna try and make it really emotionally significant. Like when I, when I get the result and I, I tried to really, really drum it home into my own mind. And I thought that way it'll be easier for the for me to pick it up, if you like. And it did seem to to help because, like I say, it came out as the best result he'd seen in a in one of those tests. So yeah, that was a, a technique that I used. But but yeah, so I just literally had to select which audio track I believed was going to be playing next. And then they did several, I forget how many, but there was a whole a whole load of them. And then it was assessed statistically so say for argument's sake if it was they, they would expect by chance that you would get maybe like i don't know uh two out of ten or something like that so anything above that would be above chance so if you got five out of ten or eight out of ten then it's getting really sig significant basically so that's that's basically how most parapsychology is done they they end up with these huge numbers of statistics of uh, how many how many trials, and then overall you get you get kind of an average. And like I say, if you control for certain types of people or certain individuals, then the rates can go really really high and be way way beyond what you would expect by chance. Then I did uh, some experiments. Uh, well, I, I did some with the with the Rhine. That was the probably the biggest. I've ever done, which was, I believe it was 14 weeks. I think there was 12 weeks of the actual experiment and 14 weeks in total. The Rhine selected a target in the US. I was in Estonia at the time and I was just sent an email saying there is a target and I had to try and perceive it psychically. So I could use any met. And to clarify, a target's a specific location, right? Well, in that case, it was it was it was an image in those particular case, randomized images. They were things like path in the countryside, some mountains, or a fire engine, or a cupcake. You know, it could be like anything. There was they literally used this pool of images that are popular for psychology experiments because they're they've been selected to be a real cross range of random images. So yeah, in that particular experiment they were images and I tried to receive them 
And again, it was looked at statistically and we got overall a statistically significant result. Again, like so meaning above chance what we would expect by someone guessing. Then I also did um, an experiment with... Uh, Wait, may I ask you one question quickly about the Rhine? How did you get that information? Did you go out of body and physically look at the item? Because it was 14 weeks, I tried, I tried a few different methods to see, see what would... So I, I, I used Gansfeld for a couple. I think I divided it up and I used some Gansfeld, some remote viewing and some out of body. And the out of body ones, when, when it worked, the out of body ones were the most accurate and successful. So, so that was interesting. Would you mind just quickly explaining how you incorporate the Gansfeld? Because I'm not sure if everyone knows what that is. The Gansfeld is a form of mild sensory deprivation, basically, or perceptual deprivation, be very specific. It's, it's basically, they take a, a ping pong ball and they cut it in half and they put it over your eyes and then they shine a red light, which causes the pupils to dilate and for the brain to look for information. But uh, as there isn't anything, you've just got this uniform red glow because of the, the ping pong balls. You then basically start to have very mild hallucinations and images and, and concepts and things start to come into your mind. So it's a way of getting to that sort of state. Usually they also use pink noise is the milder version or white noise is the one most people know about. I, in my experiments, wasn't using sound so much. I was using the, the visual aspect and just sound cancelling headphones mainly. And I also uh, used my infraliminal technology, which is sound technology that I developed to help me get into a sort of trance state. So so my, my aim was was less for the for the literal sort of how it's used in telepathy experiments where it, where you just sort of randomly things just bubble up and you describe them. I was using it more with with a specific focus on those on those images, those targets. So I find that sensory deprivation just deepens whatever it is you're trying to do. It's a way of getting you into a different state of consciousness so it makes it more likely that you'll have an out-of-body experience or more likely that your psychic information will be accurate or more likely that you'll go into a trance state. So it's just a, it's a way of aiding yourself um, and helping yourself to get into a different state of mind. So, so Gansfeld can be quite helpful, but it could be, a, you could use a flotation tank, for example, as well. But I, I just didn't, I, I used what I had available to me. So that's that's basically the Gansfeld, and the out of body was the one that worked best for you. In the, in that particular study, yeah, yeah. And then you were starting to mention you another study before I interrupted you about the Gansfeld. Yeah, so the the, the final one was really intriguing because that was at the Institute of Noetic Sciences with Dean Radin, and I I did a talk there about my work. And afterwards, we went to his lab and he has a kind of steel Faraday cage. Basically, it's a big steel box. Um, looks a bit like a, I don't know, a bank vault or a, a cell or something. 
and and I they put you inside that and they kind of lock you in and then in this particular experiment I was trying to have an impact on an interferometer which is basically for doing the the famous double slit experiment in quantum mechanics so there was this interferometer which is basically a sort of device that fires photons so it's firing photons and you have a recording you're listening to an audio recording and the order audio recording tells you to focus on on changing the the photons so basically impacting them collapsing the the function the wave function or or whatever it is um they they're instructing you to do in that particular moment and then they also tell you to 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 not do anything so they have like a control so they have a period when you're not doing anything and then they have a comparison when you are doing something and there was also a light in in your visual field when the light became bright it basically meant that you were being successful so you would stare at the light and try to make the light brighter basically and i had a really intense experience in there i started having really intense vibrations like the vibrational state which is common prior to an out of body experience so i started to have that so i was almost like having to hold myself back from having an out of body experience i think it was just the the strange scenario of being in this in this unusual environment maybe but i was holding myself back and then it was almost like i was generating heat so the whole room started to become like a sauna and it became really really intensely hot and when we opened the door they they described that they uh that literally there was like a wall of heat came out when when i came out of the faraday room and again the results were in the predicted direction so i supportive of there being a psychic effect on the photons it blows my mind because it just defies how we understand how the world works and you mentioned before this that you also had a few out of body experiences that included another person there were instances um when i was at school we we did some experiments where that was the first time where we seemed like we were able to meet while we were out of body it's quite hard to do that particular thing so i haven't had much, many instances of that but i've also been seen in recent years while out of body as a kind of shadow figure so that's that's something that seems to be it seems to be quite common that that's how people describe seeing someone out of body is is they see them as a kind of shadow so when i was living in estonia uh, when i first went there i was living in a kind of um almost like a spiritual community place uh there's there's quite a few of those kind of places around estonia and when i came back uh to the uk i had an outward experience and went back to tallinn and when i returned there physically people said that they they'd seen my presence as a as a kind of shadow while i was away so so now we've talked a lot about the evidential and yeah. unless there's another vertical one you want to share you also mentioned you can experience other dimensions i want to hear about some of the like weirdest experiences you've had going out of body well actually there's even an evidential experience related to other levels of reality because i had an experience where i whether basically been a plane crash and i 
was in this otherworldly environment. It was all misty, cloudy, very stereotypical in many ways of what people describe as a sort of afterlife type environment. But that's how it looked. It was, it had this cloudy, no up, no down kind of feeling about it. And I, I looked into the distance and I saw about 150 meters away, which also seems to be a consistent distance because even in the Soho precognitive experience, for example, it was at that kind of distance. So I was looking at all these people. I, I saw elements of their lives. I got a sense of where they were from. I got a sense that they'd all passed very quickly. And then when I came out of the experience, I found that there'd been a, a plane crash that had happened at the same time that I'd had the experience and that about 150 people had been killed. I think it was 144, something like that. And I, I'd written in my diary literally about 150 people. I'd written that they were probably Russian or something like that. And the people that had died in the in the crash were basically from that area. So yeah, so that was like an evidential experience of another level of, of reality. But yeah, the, the other levels, I, I talk about them less because they're, it's very tricky because obviously you can't know for sure if it's, if it's a, a real environment. And even when we, when we say real, it's interesting because I think that probably some of these environments like what's traditionally called the summerlands for example some of those environments are quite possibly almost like a consensus between different minds it's almost like lots of people experiencing something and it kind of builds up it's almost like a group mind possibly so i i, I tend to wonder if that's what's going on with those kinds of environments so the, the classic ones yeah would be the sort of summerland type environments which are just infused with sunlight very beautiful very like natural environments mountains valleys very very lush environments those seem to be very consistent across cultures and i've experienced them since i was in my teens those kinds of environments i've also experienced more energetic appearing environments where other beings uh, appear as just sort of energy forms, even shapes, geometric forms, things like that. Again, like I say, we get it starts to get very um, difficult to really to know. But but interestingly, some of the geometric forms, like orbs and uh, other sort of forms, shapes, and things that are commonly seen in those kinds of experiences are sometimes seen physically as well. I had another experience when I was about 16 with a musician friend of mine. So we both saw it and we saw this orb, this large green orb uh, float into the middle of the room. So the, the interesting thing is this, this orb idea, these, these, this concept of seeing things as orbs seems to be something that many people have talked about. And I think there's evidence from within the out-of-body experiences and within what people experience and what people see. So another example would be that it's around, I think something in the region around 30%, I forget the statistic, 
Exactly. But somewhere in the region around 30% people who have an out-of-body experience will see an orb. They will uh, see themselves as an orb. They will experience themselves as an orb. It's almost as common as people perceiving a, an energy body. So yeah, so there's, there's this interesting area of where energies and uh, forms seem to correlate uh, with what people experience when they're in other levels of reality and what I've perceived in other levels. So I've also had experiences of a kind of interconnected mind. Which, uh, there's a famous painting by Alex Gray called The Universal Mind Lattice. And I had an experience that looked almost identical to that, which was like a huge fountain of energy. And when I went into it, it was like I was experiencing the minds of millions of people all, all at once. Um, I could only maintain it for a few seconds. It was enough to, you know, completely transform my perception in that moment. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Have you ever had your brain scanned during these experiences or any physiological galvanic skin response or anything? I've done off of my own back, basically. I've done work with neurofeedback. Basically, that's EEG. So I've, I've done EEG, not necessarily fully out of body, but I've done quite a bit where I've been in, in the vibrational state. That was actually how I developed the infraliminal sound because I I literally observed what was going on with my brain when I was having the vibrational state and then I tried to use sound frequencies and different sound patterns to try and recreate the the vibrational state. So mainly that I haven't found it that easy to go into an out-of-body experience necessarily when rigged up to things. Unfortunately it can be quite quite distracting. But I would love to to try that for sure. That would be that would be very interesting. There was a study in Canada, the only one I'm aware of, where they they scanned a girl in an fMRI scanner and observed what was going on in her brain. What did they discover? They they basically discovered that a whole range of different areas of her brain were were active. It was essentially as if she was interacting with the world physically, but she wasn't. So her brain was was experiencing the world as if she was out there uh, doing things, but she wasn't. It didn't back up the more sceptical science that has claimed that the temporoparietal junction um, or the angular gyrus are the causes of of -of out-of-body experiences. Instead, it, it just showed that the brain was interacting in a, in a way as if someone was physically moving around, but they weren't. 
So that that was interesting to me, and it was also mostly left sided as well. Whereas in a lot of the Olaf Blanquet research, for example, which is the more sort of skeptical research, it was focused more on the right. So we have in the in the science, the brain science seems to point to all all kinds of different types of activity. So there is no one specific area or specific type of activity at this point that we can pinpoint and say that is definitely what's responsible for out-of-body experiences. I, I literally just last week published a little video called What is an Out-of-Body Experience? And I mentioned that study in there and I, I put I put the uh, study on screen. So, oh, Perfect. I'll link to that as well then. What does it feel like when you're out of body? Does it feel the same as in body? Like everything feels tangible. You can eat like a sandwich and experience it. You can like hug your dog. Not for me personally. For me, it's more like being, uh, you know, having no physical form. Like, you know, if I try and touch something, my hand will just pass through it. So no, I I don't. I mean, if you're on a different level, then sometimes you can... Uh, interact or have some kind of tangible interaction with things. I, I've tried to affect things physically. That was always something that's been interesting to me, the idea of whether you could move an object or, or something like that. I've not really had any luck <laughs> with that or success with that. The only instance that I can think of like that was um, there was a poster on on my wall and I literally passed through it in the out-of-body experience. I was trying to sort of trying to touch the wall or to interact with the wall. And I, I passed through it in the out-of-body experience. I did, wasn't aware of causing any damage or affecting it in any way. But afterwards, when I came out of the out-of-body experience, there was a, a mark on the, like a, an indent, like a line on the, on the poster. And I don't know to this day, was it there already? Was it done physically already and I just didn't notice? Or was it caused by what I was doing with the out-of-body experience? I really don't know. But that's the only instance where it seemed like it could have been caused by the out-of-body experience. And when you think about it, I mean, physics says none of us are solid. You know, we experience ourselves and material as solid, but tons of space of little vibrating particles that are separate. So there's got to be, I, I would guess somehow that ties into out of bodies and our ability to move through objects supposedly when we're out of body. I mean, I don't think anyone knows enough to explain how yet, but there's something to that, that we're absolutely not solid. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be, it could be that it's, that we're experiencing some kind of uh, sort of simulation when we're in an out of body experience as well. I'm quite open to the idea that it's uh that it's a sort of that it is a kind of construct, but it's a construct based on real information, real data, if you like. So you're kind of experiencing almost like a a live virtual reality stream or something of that nature. Something like that might be what's going on as well. There's so many possibilities of of what could be going on. That's always a really interesting area because there isn't really much science being done. On the, on the subject, unfortunately. It's a very overlooked topic. 
I know there isn't necessarily science at all for this, but, you know, we talked about the consensus reality and what you just talked about, about, you know, maybe that's part of when you're out of body. To what extent do you think maybe while we're here, that is just a consensus reality and a bit of a virtual reality? Um, I don't subscribe to the, it's all just here. We're all just here for a lesson or something like that. I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I tend to think that physical reality is just as meaningful as any other form of reality. It might even be the pinnacle. I know people tend to put the the non-physical as more important or somehow like better or in a hierarchy. And I don't tend to see things in a hierarchy. I tend to just see it as different. You know, the non-physical reality is just different to the, the physical reality, the different expressions of reality, of life. I'm just interested in all of them in all the different ways that that reality works, you know, and that consciousness works. Like the same way, I don't think, for example, I don't know, when I'm in a trance, that it's necessarily a more important or better form of consciousness than when I'm reading a book or, you know, in a different state. It's, it's just different. All of those different states of mind and like an out of body experience or whatever they're all they're all valuable additions to to the richness of our lives but they're not necessarily one's more important than another that's i guess how i see it but whether it whether this could be some kind of virtual reality i mean for sure there's evidence in that direction there's quite a lot of scientists now who are saying it's quite statistically sort of feasible that we are living in some kind of virtual reality or simulation I guess though, if the simulation is all you've ever known, it's it's then it then it is reality, really. I tend to agree with you on what you just said about like the different states of reality, and I mean, I think we also just can't know. But I, I tend to agree to not think non-physical is better, and just I mean, how do we know? And we're here. Let's just experience. I also think that there are some almost toxic ideas that sort of stem out from that. You know, like the denial of our physical body, of our natural sort of desires and who we are as human beings and all of those kinds of things, which I think are quite sort of problematic ideas that can come out from that. Um, I've also heard people say, we don't have to worry about the environment, for example, because it's all just, you know, we're only here to learn anyway. It doesn't matter. If you take that sort of further than that, then you, then it's sort of, well, you wouldn't think anything really matters because it's if it's all just a meaningless simulation, then I've heard people say, oh, we shouldn't care about people starving in, in another country, for example, because, oh, that's their lesson. They're, they incarnated in that place to, to learn. And for me, that's such a toxic idea. You know, that, that kind of thinking is not not healthy. So, so yeah, I, 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 that's, that's why I try to say, I try to see the physical as we should celebrate it. We're really lucky to be here and to have this life. And I really believe in living in a healthful way and healthful and helpful, <laughs> you know, to try, try to sort of uh, live the best life we can physically and spiritually. I agree with you 100%. I think evidence points to the fact that there's non-local consciousness as well and that we do survive death, something I never thought was possible before studying this, but... Even if that's true, like we're here, why not be here? Just like, you know, you don't go on a trip and just spend your whole time thinking about going home, ideally. So I figure if there are all these other dimensions, be in the dimension you're in. 
Exactly, yeah. So I think this would be something that'd be very, very important emotionally to people. I don't know if it's you've ever had experience with this, but is it possible to visit your deceased loved ones during out of bodies? Has anyone had experiences with that? It definitely is, but it's definitely it's definitely not the easiest thing to do. And it and it often in terms of what people describe, um, and even my own experience. I lost my father a few years ago and I had a and and I also uh, had some sort of experiences related to that too. So I think I think there is the potential to do it. Um, it often doesn't always materialize in the way that you expect it to. It sometimes goes along completely unexpected routes. So I think that's the the key thing to to remember with that kind of thing. It's I don't know those kinds of levels and those kinds of experiences. They seem to operate in a very different way even in terms of time you know like the the way time and space and everything operates but people i've worked with over the years have definitely focused on that and had different degrees of of success with that kind of thing so it's not easy but i think if if there is that connection and that desire and working with those things i think it it can it can unfold for sure one example was for me uh, a close family friend who was pretty much like my auntie. She looked after me a lot when I was a kid. She taught me to cook my first vegetarian food, <laughs> things like that. When she died, I have an I had an experience where I found myself in Cuba. At the time, I didn't really connect why I'd been drawn to Cuba. And then afterwards, I opened my diary, and the last entry in my diary was the entry about her dying. And I went to enter the the entry about Cuba, and then I realized that she she was born in Cuba. So it felt like a message from her. It felt like I was kind of being drawn there because of her, but I didn't realize it kind of at the time. So that's an example of how Maybe I would have been thinking, oh, I would see her in an out-of-body experience and have some kind of interaction. But instead, it was I was shown the place that she was born. You know, I was kind of drawn there in, in the out-of-body experience. So sometimes it can be almost like a message or a, a way of saying I'm good, but it won't necessarily mean that the two people will meet, if you like. But sometimes it does. <laughs> Which would be amazing. I think that's what we all want. I'm certainly trying that with my dad and I lost my mentor and like almost like a second mom to me recently. So I definitely would love to see both of them again. But even if not, just the evidential aspects about a body combined with all the other research shows that one day when you compare it against eternity or trillions of years, however long non-local consciousness might last, it still shows that you will see them again one day. Now, can I know you teach how to have out-of-bodies. Can ordinary people just actually have out-of-bodies doing these exercises? People who really never consider themselves the type to have, quote-unquote, weird, inexplicable abilities. Is it worth all of people like me and all of those type of people trying this? Well, I do think I'm kind of an ordinary person. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's actually true. That's one of the things that's so interesting is all these people think extraordinary experiences when we meet all you guys here. You know, no one's different than anyone else. But I guess 
should people be too discouraged if they don't feel they have abilities to try it? Or is it worth trying? And Well, it took me six months of hard work. So I don't, I don't feel like it was a, it was an easy thing necessarily. I know I had some early experiences, but I think they were more maybe, maybe what piqued my interest rather than like that I just had this strong natural ability. I definitely had to work really hard. And I was nearly at the point of giving up when I succeeded. So I, it had been six months every single night. And that's a, that's a lot of effort. So yeah, I think it is worth sort of sticking with it. And it is, I, I don't think that you necessarily have to be a different kind of person or anything like that. But I, I think what I would say is it's maybe, maybe what was different about me was the willingness to do that six months of effort. I would say that the, the main difference that I see with people is that they want shortcuts or they want to they get there the easy way or whatever. They're not willing to sort of put the, the effort in. That's what really separates people out. When you look at people who are incredible musicians or whatever, or dancers or athletes, do, do any of them do it purely on natural ability? They all work really hard to get to that, to get to that point. They all study, they all, you know, practice, they all, they all do all of that stuff in a, in a really intense, devoted way. And I think that's really the difference. It's not that there's anything different about people's brains or anything like that necessarily. Maybe on a, on some occasions there are people who are, you know, like Mozart or something who, you know, like eight years old and they can do, there are these sort of prodigies, but there's plenty of other people who have worked really hard and got there that way as well. So yeah, I do really think you can do it. It's, and I, I think without body experiences, it's, it's definitely doable. I think it's, it's just the factors are that it takes a long time. It's, it's not something that necessarily people do right away. I don't want to say never because some people do. I've had students who their first ever attempts, they've had an out-of-body experience. It does happen. It's not the norm. It's not the norm. Um, it didn't happen for me and it doesn't happen for most people. It's They're the sort of exceptions. Most people, it's, it's around two months now of our modern sort of techniques and everything, around two months of consistent work so that's that's the thing most people most people don't make it to the two months of consistent work they'll do like two weeks and then they'll get bored and they'll go off and do something else so so you have to really want it i would say and i've noticed after taking your class i i might have had like a dream or two that got a little verified where i went to my home apartment and i saw my mom and i thought this alarm had gone off and, or I thought our doorman had like come in the apartment in the middle of the night. It was actually frightening. And then I found out from my mom that the smoke alarm started going off at that time and she was jolted awake. And in the dream, I felt I was in there seeing her sleep and jolted awake because I felt like someone breaking in. And it was one of our doormen who we trust completely. But in the dream, it was kind of this jolting experience. That was probably the closest to a verified out of body so I'm interrupting myself here because I realize when I went to edit that I didn't explain this story very well. So what happened was I had a dream 
that I was home. By home, I mean home home, my childhood home, where I don't live anymore. And I was not actually physically there that night. I was in my apartment in Brooklyn. And I walked into my mom's bedroom and the phone rang and it rang really loudly. And I dreamt it was her old landline, my parents' old landline, not just the cell phones that my mom has now. And it was this loud ring. And for some reason, I felt a terror. Like I really jumped. And I don't know why. And one thing that was interesting was that it didn't look dreamlike. You know how things in dreams often have something that's off or something that's different than how it is in real life. Everything looked exactly how my parents' bedroom would look with my mom sleeping in it as if I was really there at two in the morning. And after the phone rang, I remembered suddenly hearing, feeling this terror that the phone rang and then that suddenly someone was entering the apartment. And in the dream, it was just our doorman. And we've had doormen my whole life. They're really kind. There's just no reason either the phone ringing or thinking that the doorman was coming in would be terrifying. So apparently what my mom ended up telling me was that night in the middle of the night, the smoke alarm went off. She woke up and was jolted and had to call the doorman to come up to fix it. So that was, in my mind, seemed like kind of evidential of an out of body. So that was it. Okay, back to my conversation with Graham. And I notice I'll feel the waves and vibrations and I feel them a few feet above my body which is a very cool experience. And maybe I'll get further. I'm trying. We'll see. That's a good experience right away there, you know. So you talked a little bit about how out of body, it doesn't feel like you don't have physical sensations. Or do you have any forms of physical sensations when you're out of body? Or is it just complete? Like, how are you getting your information? I guess is what I'm asking. Um, primarily visual, visual and auditory information. Primarily, I do have physical movement, sort of kinetic sensations sometimes. I mean, that's something I should emphasize. I, I think we need a lot more research as well, looking at the phenomenology of our body experiences, because I think they can be quite different. I mentioned in my precognitive experiences, for example, that there's a sort of blue gray quality in some of those experiences like the Soho bombing one. That's one type of visual perception that I've noted. But then I also have other duotone experiences, meaning two color experiences. So it seems that there's these visual experiences that, that have these, they don't have all the colors that we would associate with physical vision, for example. And then I also have experiences where I'm hearing things and my Hearing seems to be more complex. It seems like I'm hearing things. Well, I can't actually compare them to anything physical. So I don't know whether they are like what maybe like some other kind of animal would hear or whether I'm experiencing something that's non-physical in nature. But sometimes you get frequencies and sounds that are different. So there's all kinds of different sensory information. And I think that really needs to be studied as well. Like I mentioned, people often 
experience themselves as, as, as like an orb, like a traveling orb, or or just a, a pure consciousness. Or sometimes you feel kind of waves, almost like um, tides of energy moving through the space. So there's all these different kinds of sensations and, and uh, sensory information that's different to what we would experience physically. And I don't know what they are and what they relate to. And, and, and I think it's very interesting that we need to sort of learn more about that. If we're going to understand what an out-body experience is, we need to learn more about and look at more related to those kinds of experiences uh, and those kinds of visual and different kinds of sensory information that comes through. Now, you said it's less colors than you see in this dimension. Well, it can be more as well. That was going to be my question. Have you ever seen a color that you don't really see in this dimension? Definitely there are there, there are times when vision would be sort of hyper for real. So or like seeing normally, but with extra color or more detail or uh, deeper perception, that kind of thing. So it can go that way, but it can also, it can go either way. So it seems that the way our vision and our senses in an, and, and even our physicality in an out of body experience, how they are constructed differs in different experiences. So that suggests that something is having an impact on those structures. So is that our state of consciousness? Is that something to do with the, how the psi information is coming in? Is that, you know, is that something to do with a mental construct? I think it's probably multiple different things uh, interacting at once, but that's definitely something that needs to be looked into a lot more because I don't know, I don't know really of anyone who's gone into that other than sort of my work really. So that's something that really needs to be looked at, especially the visual side of things for the science. You know, if we're going to get more of that, you know, seeing targets and doing research in the lab. The more we can understand how vision works in out-of-body experience, the more we can understand how the veridical elements come through, the better the results we're going to get. I'm actually in the middle of reading Dr. Kenneth Ring's book, Mind Sight, about blind people who were able to see and report back facts. Blind, yeah, people have been born blind. and Sure, yeah. I, I'm aware of that book, yeah. Have So have you ever had anyone blind or deaf or people who are able to have a type of sensory experience that when they're here, they can't have like blind people, deaf people. I did have one student who was blind, but we didn't, we didn't get very far with the, with the uh, teaching with, with him. So no, I haven't really done very much with, with anyone uh, who's blind. It would be very interesting for sure to see if that could happen. No, I haven't haven't done much with just that one person, like I say, and, and we didn't we didn't go very far with the teaching with him. That would be one of my dream studies would be to try out a body with a group of blind people and put visual, you know, maybe even people who knew what seeing was who became blind later in life and compare both. That would be just so interesting. And this could also be a game changer for people who maybe are bedridden or, you know, what is the experiential difference from your perspective of the OBEs that are more verified, more of this world versus the ones that seem to be completely next level? 
Yeah, that's a good question. They they do have a quality that's different. I do usually kind of pay attention. I, I kind of notice when there's something. Obviously, there's the blue-gray quality that I will notice straight away, but there is also a sort of deeper level to the actual experience. It's like you're in a deeper state of trance, especially the Soho one. was I was very, very deep. It took me a period of time to come out of that trance. Literally, there was a guy there called Chris and another guy called Lawrence, and, and they were literally having to, they, they knew something intense was happening to me. They were literally trying to sort of coax me back out of it. Interestingly, it was almost like they were tuning into me. There was some kind of energetic interaction going on. Chris was sort of breathing in a very specific way. And it seemed like from what he said as well, that, that I was sort of responding to the way he was breathing. So it was almost like his breathing was slowly bringing me back to normal consciousness. So it was quite a slow process. So yeah, there is a, a depth difference and there is a, a sort of vividness. It's almost like if you wear glasses and you're, you're looking at the world without your glasses and then you put the glasses on and suddenly everything sort of comes into sharp focus. It's, it's sort of like that. A normal experience would be like the not wearing glasses and the really veridical and powerful experiences would be more like you're wearing glasses. There's a kind of sharpness and a crystalline nature to it. The most common state that I've had veridical experiences in has been a state I call the crystalline state. And I named it that literally because it is like this sharp crystalline perception. It's very, very crisp and clear. Uh, the one, the one in the, with the church, for example, that you mentioned, that one was when I was in that crystalline state. Yeah, there's a, there's a definite definite quality, but it's very difficult to describe in words what I'm what I'm talking about. But there's a there's a sort of I guess you could say something akin to being in in the zone as well. You know, when you're very hyper focused and everything's just flowing and there's no stress, you have no feeling of stress. Just everything feels really in tune it's kind of like that and whenever i get all of those aspects in an experience then i i know that's a significant experience is there ever a risk you can't get back in your body no i don't think so i i think i think these are sort of like old superstitions from from like a bygone age really that kind of stuff like i said i don't even know if it's it's leaving the body as such you know people tend to think of it almost like you're like a russian doll or something and you like something's popped out and gone off over there and that's left you completely empty and i don't think that's how it works i think it's more that you're sending your perceptions your sensory awareness your point of consciousness extended beyond your body but i don't think that means that your brain is now somehow empty or that your your body is somehow empty and something could just sort of pop in. And I also don't think that in the same sense you can get lost. You know, that's your unique framework, your unique pattern, your, your unique interaction with the world. I think what's even more exciting and more profound is to think that we're probably never really in our bodies in the first place. I think that our consciousness is extended out. I don't, I don't think that I don't like, I don't think it's just my little 
skull here, you know, your brain, and that's that's it. I think that if these non-local consciousness aspects and all of this, that's why we can do psychic stuff when we're just sitting here. We can do remote viewing or we can do an experiment with clairvoyance. We're not going out of body. I'm just closing my eyes or maybe not even, you know, with remote viewing, I might just be like, uh, with remote viewing, for example, you often use an ideogram, which is a little squiggle, basically. And then you touch that squiggle with your pencil. And as you touch it, you try to tune in. You try to literally feel what is at that location. So you're not using visuals in that moment. You're using more kinetic or textural. Or you're trying to sort of feel what is at that location. So I think that that's because we are interconnected at all times. I think that the evidence is leaning more and more that, that our brains, our minds are interconnected and we're able to tune into different things at any any given moment. The reason we don't is because our awareness is dominated by we're doing other things. Like right now, I'm looking at the microphone, looking at you on the screen, and I'm kind of aware of the room I'm in and all. Of, there's all that sensory information, which is overriding all of that that psychic signal. But if I close my eyes and I start to sort of tune inwardly and I try to sort of cut off all of the sensory information around me. This gets back to the sensory deprivation we were talking about earlier with the Gansfeld or, or different kinds of methods like that. You're removing the dominant sensory information and allowing the, the subtle, more unconscious aspects to come to the fore. And I, I think when we do that, it's not that we're disconnecting and reconnecting to something else. I think that it's just that we're putting our awareness onto something that we're already connected to. So I think with an out-of-body experience, probably all of this information is already there. We're already interconnected. We're not separate from, from the outside. We're not, you know, we're not divided in, in this way. It's just that we have to get ourselves to a point where we can we can experience that. So in a way, the key to having an out-of-body experience is not going out of body. The key is shutting off all of this sensory information so we can realize that we're already out of body. <laughs> so do you think there's ever going to be a way like the out-of-body consciousness that supposedly downloads into our brain? Do you think we're ever going to be able to measure what it's made of, like the way we have the Large Hadron Collider keeps discovering smaller and smaller, newer particles. Do you think <laughs> we're going to have a machine like that that's going to be able to discover the form that consciousness takes that is downloaded? I really hope so, um, because that, that would be a real game changer. If we could find the mechanism, if we could find the medium by which psi functions, because I think we do have good evidence now. We've got 140 years or so of data now, and especially the, the research that's been done since, say, the late 90s, or even earlier, probably, maybe some, some of the stuff from the 80s as, as well. But we've got that real body of, of information now. So I think we can safely say that there is something going on. I think most of the scientists who have really looked at the, the data can see that there is a consistent effect that's 
seen over and over and over again. In in ordinary people, you know, in ordinary people, we know we know the effect size is going to be about seven eight percent. You know, not huge, but but not nothing either. You know, it's a significant effect, and that's that's seen in ordinary people. Obviously, it's more in people who are gifted or or kind of trained or, or whatever. But I I think that if if we could find some kind of mechanism. Then I think things are really gonna, really gonna change. I think we might already have some of the mechanisms, but we we've got to find the connector connection points in the brain of how those function. There's different theories like um, Orkor, for example. Um, so Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff put forward this idea that the microtubules or very very low level structures of cells could in some way be entangled and and that could be the solution to what consciousness is or could could in some way be an explanation for near-death experiences out-of-body experiences that kind of thing so that's possible too but but yeah there's even some theories like hidden sector matter for example from string theory this idea that i mean again it's just a theory, but if it did turn out to be true, hidden sector matter could be a way that we could have a sort of energy form of ourselves or say an energy, energetic, or a different kind of matter, let's say, a different kind of matter replica of our physical brain. So if you can have a hidden sector brain, for example, maybe the hidden sector brain can function separately to the physical brain. Or if any kind of energetic brain could function in that way, so you could basically have a replica of yourself. So maybe an out-of-body experience is a replica. Maybe it's literally like uh, a replica brain is what's interacting with the world. I don't know. I mean, there's so many possibilities. It's all just conjecture. But but at the at the same time, I I think it's crazy to say that these experiences couldn't happen because there are so many possibilities of how it could. Potentially work, you know, even within very conventional science. So I personally, for what it's worth, I'm not a scientist, but from the beginning of researching this, I always thought somehow string theory would tie in with this. You know, it's was it nine <laughs> or twelve dimensions? Some say nine, some say twelve. I mean, there could be a non-local form of all of our consciousness in all those dimensions that download in all different yeah. ways. And and I know, like regarding shadow people. Dr. Stephen Hawking did a YouTube talk speaking about how like shadow people reflections from one dimension can reflect in another, which, you know, you're not going to get smarter than Dr. Stephen Hawking. So when you hear that, (laughs) it's pretty encouraging. So Roger Penrose worked with, with him. So, you know, it's, uh, and, and he's, he's one of the main people. And so did Dr. Stuart Hameroff, right? Both of them worked with him. Am I wrong? I'm not sure. Um, I, I couldn't say, but um, I know I know that um, Roger Penrose did. So, um, but but there's you know many Brian Josephson who won the Nobel Prize for physics. He also puts forward a theory of how uh, quantum effects could could allow for psychic abilities. So you know there's there's lots of scientists who feel that this could be the the answer to what's going on with psychic abilities. It's not woo-woo stuff. It's really solid scientists who are saying this. So people like me, 
who are not scientists, we're just repeating what the actual scientists are saying. So, you know, it's it's very frustrating when people kind of dismiss it as woo-woo, oh, people just start talking about quantum and all of this. Well, the reason I talk about quantum theory is because literally Nobel laureates have told me that this is one way that psychic abilities could work, you know. That's what has given me all the encouragement. And there's so many people like you, people like everyone at the Rhine that are taking, might not all be official scientists, but are taking such a scientific non-woo approach. And then often the woo is what gets the most media attention. And that makes so many people who haven't looked into the data dismiss it because they'll hear the most absurd definition that somehow got the most likes on social. And then a lot of, you know, the research that's being done, hopefully more and more is going to start coming to the forefront because this is, I think this is the most profound game changer we could ever imagine. I, I really love the science. I really love getting into all that. So, you know, and, and just the Ready to embody that next level calm and confidence? It's time to activate that part of your subconscious. Get the self-paced 11-minute-a-day program by me, author of Confidence Introvert and Certified Subconscious Reprogrammer. Go to stephanietoma.com slash confidenceboost. Use code WTF50 for $50 off. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So this ties into a previous question where someone had asked about my experience bending a spoon and what that was like. If you want to listen to when I answer this question, you can check out episode 29. Do psychic mediums know all your secrets? Your questions answered. It's a compilation of 10 questions. I do an all questions episode every 10 questions, but this is the second part to my answer. This is actually about a time I didn't bend a spoon, which I think just adds to the evidence that something inexplicable is going on with spoon bending and that it is genuine. So when I explain about when I did bend a spoon, I had bent one at a medium Laura Lynn Jackson's workshop and It was really early on, and I was really shocked. So fast forward a couple years later, and I'm at an event with the Forever Family Foundation, and there's a bunch of mediums there and a bunch of non-mediums as well. And Lloyd Arbach, who I have had on this podcast as well in episodes 13 and 14. So Lloyd was hosting a spoon-bending workshop at this Forever Family Foundation retreat. And I went to it along with, I think there were six other women and one man. And all the other women were psychic mediums. Then there was me and this man that I know is part of Forever Family, and he's also not a medium. So Lloyd dumped out all the spoons and forks actually on the table because Yeah, you can bend spoons or forks. And I, it was a huge amount of them and all of us were running and grabbing them and trying to bend them. And I could not bend them. And I did the same thing I had done in Laura Lynn's workshop and nothing 
was happening. And I looked over and all the other women who are my size, you know, to clarify, we're all pretty small and I wouldn't say any of us are weightlifters. They were all bending them easily. And again, they're psychic mediums and I'm not. So I started handing them the spoons and forks that I could not bend. And I was just grabbing them, trying to bend and passing them off. And the exact same spoons and forks that I could not bend, all the psychic mediums, I guess about five of them, women, same size as me, around the same strength, they bent the same ones that I could not. So that shows that there wasn't some weird substance on them that made them bendable. They weren't tricks, spoons, or forks to create an experience of bending for us. They were normal spoons and forks that an average person could not just bend. And they were just, they were twisting them up. And again, these were the exact same ones I couldn't. And the only difference between myself and these other women, they're psychic mediums and I'm not. Oh, and also I'll add the man who was physically stronger than all of us, also not a psychic medium, was the only other person aside from me who could not bend any of the spoons or forks. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. 
Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. So thank you so much. So just let all our guests know, I know we mentioned in the beginning, where can everyone find you? Well, the best place is grahamnichols.com. I've actually sort of been leaving social media a bit. So definitely my, my website is the best place. I am going to be putting a lot more uh, information, videos and stuff on YouTube now. I'm kind of been thinking I want to cover a lot of these topics in a bit more depth uh, via via my channel on there. So, and I'll I'll also be putting up a, an alternative channel because I think Google is a very toxic organization, and a lot of these social media platforms are. So I'm going to be looking into alternative options like maybe PeerTube or something like that, where people can get the videos without any advertising and all of that as well. Yeah, so my YouTube or grahamnichols.com. I've got my full course on there, uh, information about my books and also my infraliminal sound technology that I mentioned during the, during the talk. So uh, all of that's on there. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTF justhappened.net there you can order my book what the fuck just happened a sciency skeptic explores grief healing and evidence of an afterlife and you can learn all about how i came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife you can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing fascinating people i met along the way you can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.